Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Connection, where industry expert Doug Plucknett interviews global leaders from the maintenance and reliability industry. Each week, new leaders will join us with insights and tips to help you grow in your career, and they'll share a good story or two while they're at it as well. The Leadership Connection is produced by the industry's leading networking and learning community, Mobius Connect. Doug, over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it might be that you're tuning in and listening to this podcast. Welcome to the Leadership Connection. I'm Doug Plucknett. Today I have a special guest from Eli Lilly, Brandella Wenzel. She is the Global Maintenance and Reliability Leader uh, for Eli Lilly and has been in that job for uh, some time now. And I happened to catch uh, a post of Brendel is online a while back on LinkedIn, and I thought, well, that she might be somebody very interesting to talk to about the leadership connection, being in a role of leadership and maintenance and reliability. So I sent out a quick uh, message to her, and I'm quite happy to say that she agreed. Good morning, Rendella. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? Not bad. Um, I, I don't know if you're getting the same weather that we're getting. It seems to have been raining here for a couple of days straight. Um, we had same some great here. sunshine. Great sunshine just before that, and uh, lately we've, uh, if you don't have an umbrella, you're going to be wet, so it's looking that way as well today, and then uh, a slow warm-up after that, and we look forward to that, having been in winter here in upstate New York for quite some time. Uh, Absolutely. So tell me a bit, Rendell, about your background, where your education, companies you've worked with, the different roles you've worked in in your yeah. career. Um, so I graduated from Purdue University with a bachelor's in uh, mechanical engineering, and I have um, an MBA uh, from Indiana Wesleyan University that their accelerated program uh, while I worked, and I started out in the automotive industry. I worked for the Chrysler Corporation. Right. And I started out in the process engineering area and then worked through um, maintenance and operations leadership there. And I ran the entire second shift operations uh, at one point before uh, I left and went to International Truck and Engine, which is also uh, automotive. We made the power stroke diesels for Ford and uh, the over-the-road uh, semi-Eagle brand international trucks as well. And I was in the reliability uh, side of things. That's where I got into reliability. They said, hey, we this is a new buzzword and we want to learn about it. So they hired a few of us and said, go out and figure out what this reliability thing is. And then um, went into my MBA program and met someone that Said they were hiring at Eli Lilly and hiring reliability engineers, and I should check them out. Well, that's where I ended up at uh, Eli Lilly and Company in the pharmaceutical industry as a mechanical engineer in a chemical engineer world. So that's where I've been for the last, see, in uh, May, it'll be 18 years. So and the automotive various, industry. Yeah, go ahead. Automotive industry, that's pretty uh, high-stress environment, isn't it? Yes, the union environment. Um, both of those were union environments, very high stress, fast paced environments. Um, enjoyed that very much actually. And then transitioned so, into the pharmaceutical. And how was that transition going from that type of environment to a pharmaceutical environment where it's not so much 
the widgets, it's really uh, high quality. Make sure you get it right the first time. Extremely important uh, in terms of customer safety. Was was there a, any kind of difficulties in that transition, or how'd that go? It was like night and day. Um, <laughs> I had never, well, in a regulated environment, uh, when you go from widgets to um, you know, medicine manufacturing where you're putting things into people. It's a very, very big change. It's you have an entirely different uh, aspect and outlook on everything that you do. And I learned that you just can't go out and, and fix something. You have to really have a lot of due diligence. You have to document everything. You have to understand what the ramifications are of what you're doing. And, um, you know, it's very fulfilling to be able to work somewhere where you're actually helping people and so i i enjoy that very much right and uh very good uh, i can tell you my my experience with the farm my first time out was uh you know i'd come from east Kodak company and on the chemical side of the business and uh well safety and environment was our top priority when you get into the pharma business that's really that product quality and I can remember looking at some maintenance tasks that I thought, well, this would probably be a better change or direction to go. And of course, I'm asking questions to a team and they're saying, oh, no, we, you know, we can't do that because uh, we had an incident several years ago where, where an I.O. card failed. And, and so now we're just replacing them every six months. Right. Right. And you, you just go, now, wait a minute. That makes no sense at all. And they say, look, if you can supply data and that's what we're working on, we have to now put together data to prove that the I.O. cards will last longer than that. And once we get that proved out, then we'll be able to make that change. But until then, we're stuck with because we care more about the safety of our customers and our products than um, taking the risk. So it really is. It was very strange for me. But once you understand that, it, it certainly makes sense. So yeah, looking at your, at your career, when do you think you were first recognized as a leader? What was going on? What was the project you were working on? Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so as far as, um, you know, I had done several things in the automotive industry, um, in the operations and maintenance side, uh, process side. But I think really when I got to Eli Lilly, it was where I was able to take a lot of those learnings. And also from the military side, um, you know, I was a commander in the Army and ah. achieved the rank of captain. and so. Being able to apply in a, it's being able to influence people without necessarily having the direct reports. So transitioning to the individual contributor side rather than the leadership side in the reliability space, you're able to interact with people in multiple different uh, levels of the organization. And taking that kind of military background and being able to do that along with what I've learned in the reliability space. And I think one of the main projects was our lubrication program. We had a very strong vibration program, which a lot of manufacturers really kind of start out there uh, in the last, you know, 20 years or so. A lot of them will have a good vibration program, and then the lubrication programs kind of come in behind that for whatever reason. And um, so that was one that I was able to kind of take what they had in that space and really take that and develop that into a global program 
Um, we had a corporate lubrication technical team that had about 26 members on it at the time. And we were able to win the John Battle Award through ICML. And that was really where people really started to notice about this thing called condition-based maintenance. Wow. And so I was kind of the person that, um, that really championed that throughout the different sites. So that was really the point, I think, where I started to kind of branch out, not just at Eli Lilly, but also, you know, being able to present and attend conferences and things like that and really um, be able to help educate and, and really give back to the industry. Uh, so that's been very rewarding for me. That is a, a tremendous accomplishment. And when, <laughs> you know, most people that I talk with, they're just trying to accomplish that at one site, right? To do that across multiple locations takes a, a tremendous amount of leadership and uh, not only that, the skills to, to sell it, right? To tell people this is what really needs to be done and here's why. And um, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about my career in, in educating people with RCM is the show me type thing. When you made that transition, um, maintenance people tend to be, you know, they might listen all day long, but when you show them something and they see it, all of a sudden now you've really sold it, right? When they can actually see that there's a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so. I was uh, caught your piece on the military background, and you, you kind of left that out in the beginning. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's another great question that I ask, because I have a number of friends that have become leaders in our community that have military background, and I say to them, how was that transition going from an environment when you have a certain rank, those that are ranked below you, they listen, right? And they do. And when you go out to the civilian world and all of a sudden you say something and, and people all of a sudden kind of look at you and go, why? Right. Um, how was that transition for you? A little rocky. Um, <laughs> I, um, I still fight that a little bit because I, you know, in the industry, no matter, you know, what industry it is, you prove things and it's hard for me because I prove things with data. Um, and, you know, I show the influence, I show, you know, the adaptation in various areas, and then you still come back and you still have not really naysayers, but they're more on the fence to say, okay, is this really the right direction for us in whatever, yeah. you know, program you're trying to run? And it, it gets a little frustrating, and I've learned to try and compartmentalize that and just really... It's probably more age and <laughs> learned wisdom over time <laughs> versus, you know, knee-jerk reaction. But I think it's more of trying to understand the other side's concern. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and at that point, sometimes you just have to walk away and leave it for a few days and then come back and say, okay, is there something that I missed? Um, but it's yeah. just a, it's a constant education in this industry. People sure. rotate, you know, so it's, it gets very frustrating at times. I will be completely honest with you. Yeah, and when you look at that, our, this culture that we've created in manufacturing, and it's common at all, all companies, the, the shop floor folks, maintenance and operations, tend to be very skeptical, right? And when you step back and look at it from their point of view, it is just as you said, people tend to rotate in and out. 
and we have programs of the month, right? And so they become skeptics over time. They say, oh, nothing's really going to change. This is going to go back to blah, 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 blah. And you do is it is one of those things. You need data and you need to be able to show them. And typically when you provide both of those, right, they look at it and they go, okay, that seems worthwhile. I'll go with that. But until you right. do that, right, it, to them, it's just noise, right? Oh, there's more noise. And that's why you see people that are uh, 40 years and up, they want to work those night shifts. What do you suppose that is, right? <laughs> Absolutely. They hear, less, they hear less noise at night, right? They just come in and do their jobs. All right. So um, going back to your career, uh, are there a couple people that you'd like to mention that, that maybe have been mentors that, that helped you uh, with the growth in your career? Yeah, I um, I really like uh, Mary Bunzel. She has been someone that has really helped me and mentored me. Um, and she would be very um, coy about it and say, "No, I think you mentored me." But um, <laughs> she's, you know, she's one of those people that I that I look up to. You know, just her network, the way she's able to um, kind of maneuver in the industry, and and I really look up to that. You know, and trying to be more outgoing and more social, and and all of those things. And I, I really like, uh, really like Mary, and I've always appreciated the talks that we've had. Um, yeah, and I think she's at the University of Wisconsin now. I don't know if you know Mary. I have met Mary. We met uh, actually through Tim Gosher at a conference in Italy. I don't remember what city it was in. And at the end of the conference, we had a flight from there to uh amsterdam and we happened to sit next to one another on that flight so i i can't say i know mary well but ever since then you know if i bump into her at a conference we stop and have a conversation yeah uh yeah so very good anybody else you'd like to mention well i have um a few guys that i've worked with they were uh machinists and electricians and uh millwrights and so a lot of those guys that I have worked with over the years, they just, you know, took a young a young lady out of school and had a lot of book knowledge and said, hey, you know, here's how we do things. There was an electrician we called Rambo. And um, then I had a, um, a machinist turned manager, uh, Dan Walls at International. And, and those guys just really took me out and said, here's how... You know, you work on things, you're able to diagnose things in a union environment without uh, touching them. And that was very big for me. I had to explain what it was that I needed them to do without physically touching, you know, the equipment. And so I learned quite a right. bit from them. So I would say the trades community over the last, you know, 25 plus years of my career has been absolutely instrumental. And I think we need to have more of that yeah. in our schools and all of that. I just, I don't think that we appreciate that enough. I agree with that 100%. And I've written quite a number of articles on the, the need to go back to uh, apprentice programs. Um, I'm a, a graduate of one of those myself. I started that way and then did my schooling at night. But, uh, you know, that you recognizing those people, it brings back thoughts to my career of the engineers that, that were willing to come out of the office yeah. and willing to ask questions and willing to share back and forth. That's where, you know, 
my understanding of process came from engineers, right? Initially, my drive was I'm going to be the best pipe fitter there ever was, right? And then yeah. when all of a sudden you work with an engineer that's saying, okay, this is what we need to do. Can you do this for me? And you start asking questions back and forth, right? And you learn from one another, right? And once I understood how this polymer process worked, all of a sudden my job came, became completely different. Right, um, and that's a tremendous thing when you can get that back and forth from people. Um, Absolutely. So at this point in your career, you must have been in a position where you've been hiring leaders. Um, and I'd like to ask that question to people to say, what are some of the, give me a, two traits that you look for when you're hiring leaders. Um, the willingness to be adaptable. Mm -hmm. And by that, I find that a lot of uh, young people that are coming into the industry um, want to become a director in three years. And, you know, they want to have the best job and they don't really want to take a look at some of these other roles that may not be as, you know, sexy, if you will. Um, but... I look for people that are hungry for knowledge. They want to learn, hey, I'll take this role over here that may not be as, um, you know, may not have the spotlight on them for future opportunities, but it'll teach them the things that they need to become a better leader and a better listener, um, you know, becoming a leader and not just a manager. And so I look for those adaptability traits within uh, the young people coming in not just you know they they're exceptionally intelligent um it's just that being able to apply you know some empathy in there um right. and um being a leader and not necessarily a manager and being able to handle multiple things at one time and being able to make a decision and not be paralyzed by the data. You have to be a decision maker. You have to be able to take risks. If you can't take risks, then you know you're not going to make it. You know Very you might be wrong, but you learn from it. Yeah, I like the the willing to adapt. And and I will admit, you know, when I was younger, and you know, I went from apprentice to journeyman to to lead person relatively quickly, right? And then I thought, well, mm -hmm. you know, kind of sky's the limit as long as I keep going to school, right? You, I can remember being that impatient person myself, right? And then having yeah. a, a boss that finally sat me down and said, look, <laughs> you got all the qualities. It's a matter of time now, right? And experience, go out there. There's so much more that you can learn in what you're doing. And when people uh, explain that to you, sometimes it, that's all you need to hear, right? Yes. Go do more. Go uh, you know, We call it out. time and grade in the Army. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, learn about the chemistry of what we do, right? Learn about, you're on the mechanical side of the business, learn about the instrument and the electrical side, right? Yeah, the more absolutely. You know, the more you know, the more valuable you are. And, and explaining that to young people is an important part of leadership for sure. Uh, so listen, nearly every leader I've ever uh, met and talked with, generally at conferences, you know, if somebody uh, gets up and does a presentation, I think, man, that was really great. 
I'll, I'll make an attempt to meet that person. And typically, the first question I ask outside of what they're presenting on is, tell me about a book or a course that you've taken or read that made a difference in your career. Are, are there one or two of those that, that you could uh, share with our listeners? Yeah. I, I would definitely take a look at um, Stephen Covey's, let's see, Habits, Highly Effective Habits, Seven Habits of Effective People or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, he really brought home a lot of attributes that I've really tried to, I go back to that book and over and over I go back to that book and try to say, okay, in this situation, you know, what am I doing? What am I not doing? Um, so I really like uh, that book by Stephen Covey. And right. um, I would say um, the SMRP side of things, they have really um, helped me with the conferences and networks and things like that, as well as the ICML. Um, a lot of their courses uh, through their accredited trainers and just the whole learning aspect of it. I've attended some reliability management type seminars of how to apply the technical side of reliability in, in, in dollars and cents to try to be able to speak the language of uh, senior leadership because it's one thing to have a program, but you have to be able to prove its value. So those are um, a few things that have really helped me along the way. That, that's an interesting concept, the proving of the value, isn't it? Um, yes. As a reliability engineer at, at Kodak, our, our uh, boss at that time, when we had a you know relatively small group, it was global equipment reliability. So we each had a, a business unit or division that we were responsible for. And the, our first charge from our leader was, uh, at the end of the year, you are going to need to show how you benefited the organization in dollars and cents, right? So yeah. what, for everything, you know, and we started out with just measuring, right? OEE and TEEP, and you're like, all right, how am I going to prove that I saved anybody money by measuring this? And then when you learn more about it, right, through the SMRP community, through other reliability leaders, you go, holy smokes, that's a tool to identify losses. And once I understand losses, then we can start looking at things like root cause analysis. So proving that out is something that every reliability organization should really be doing. And that's a, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, One other thing that popped in my head is in my uh, master's, my business master's course, we had a course in business etiquette and culture. And... Mm -hmm. As I've dealt with multiple different countries, um, you have to understand the culture of those areas and what's offensive and what's not offensive. Just like here yeah. in America, we have, um, you know, we don't stand too close and, you know, things like that. And, and yeah. so, hey, you're in my space. And so that is something, if you're going to be in a global realm, you have to understand um, each one of those individuals that you react with culturally in their own environment. And I would, you know, if, if someone is moving into a global type of a role or something like that, definitely uh, culture and etiquette type book or course or something like that. So well, I have an example of that. that we're, <laughs> I didn't take a course in it. I had somebody um, 
a, a friend from Cargill, Europe, that explained to me a couple of things when I was working over there. You should or shouldn't do this, right? Right. And uh, so then he said, one of the best ways when you're traveling to other countries is when you start to teach, you know, tell people, look, I, I'm new to your country. If I do anything that uh, is offensive or, you know, viewed as improper, please let me know, right? And I can remember uh, doing uh, working with a company in Indonesia for the first time. And I read, don't put your feet up on the table that was really insulting for them, right? But at the same time, I cross legs like we do here, right? I, right? And I went, what? He says, when you sit like that, you're showing the bottom of your feet. It's just like putting your feet up on the table, right? And when you learn things like that, you go, okay, I'll try to remember that for the rest of the week because I sit like that all the time, right? So then from then on, it's yeah. like, okay, put my hands on my knees, <laughs> right? So right. that's an excellent point. Um, Looking at this uh, leadership, you'll hear people from time to time make the argument that leadership is a natural skill or leadership is a learned skill. What's your belief in terms of that? I think, you know, I've made the comment earlier about leaders, not managers. I mean, I think right. anyone can be a manager um, if you're given, you know, the authority to do so. But not everyone is a leader. And I think that is a learned skill. I almost think you're born with it or you're not born with it. And, um, you know, that's something that I found in, in the Army is that, um, you know, I mean, it's like anywhere. You have good ones and you have bad ones. And um, it is really a learned or born with skill. It's not something that you can go and get an education for. Yep. All right. That's fantastic. So. Kind of closing out here, um, at this point in your career, what would you say is your greatest success? I would say, you know, developing this whole global culture and network at Eli Lilly and what we're doing with condition analytics and the IoT front. I think it's been it's been extremely challenging to kind of go from a time-based type philosophy and try to move um, a regulated organization into understanding and believing in uh, condition-based, you know, kind of like, uh, well, we're not going to get our oil changed every three to 5,000 miles. We're going to look at our sensors and say, oh, well, the oil percentage is such, you know, like this or like this and get people to really understand um, based upon how we use things it's not that we're not going to do the particular maintenance on that particular asset we're actually going to uh, do that maintenance on time or, or on condition and not on time and so being able to develop that whole strategy and work with multiple silos in the organization i think has been um it's been probably my most challenging assignment in my career and um there's been times that I have been extremely frustrated, but it's been extremely rewarding in its all different levels of the organization and, and a lot of um, operators and uh, maintenance personnel, reliability people, you know, leaders have all been able to put their uh, thoughts, concerns, and 
um, you know, their ideas into this and trying to just listen to everyone and, and coalesce that into a global program that everyone can feel ownership in. Um, that's been probably my greatest achievement. All right, Rendell, it's been fantastic talking to you this morning. Um, Thank if, you for the opportunity. If our listeners would like to get a question out to you or uh, uh, even comment or say hello, what are some of the ways they can get in contact with Rendella? Um, I would prefer to LinkedIn, and um, right. that way I can I can kind of manage that, uh, not just you know from company email, but I can get uh, in contact <laughs> uh, through the LinkedIn, and then um, we can go from there. That's generally right. how I how I like to manage things. And I can tell our listeners that you do respond to LinkedIn because that's how I reached out to you initially. Absolutely. I check so that daily. Thank, so. Very good. Thank you very much for, for participating. It's been a very enjoyable conversation, and, and I've enjoyed learning about uh, you and your career and some of your accomplishments and uh, your views on leadership. So thanks again Absolutely. very thank much. Thank you. This has been Doug Plucknut with the Leadership Connection. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Connection. We will see you back for another episode next week. In between, we hope to see you in the Mobius Connect community where you can meet Doug and share with other industry professionals at MobiusConnect.com. We'll see you there.